you have your Bibles, I do invite you to, we're going to return to Romans chapter 12 here. Um, I'll be continuing on uh, in some ways from where I I left off uh, uh, last time. In the last couple of weeks, um, well, before I I go there, uh, we do, boy, as a church, we've just been um, hit by a lot of hospitalizations and surgeries and illnesses. Um, we, we really are in need of special prayer, and I do invite you to use that, uh, the, the bulletin announcements that are sent um, uh, through email, uh, to use that as just a real prayer guide through the week uh, to lift these individuals and their families uh, in prayer. In the last couple of weeks, I've had the chance to be part of uh, uh, several, well, lots of Zoom meetings, but in this case, our General Assembly um, met by Zoom a couple uh, maybe even two and a half weeks ago, um, on a Thursday and Friday, that was uh, held in Orlando, but almost all the attendees were, were online. And then just this last Friday, we had um, our, press, our regional meeting, our presbytery meeting. That's, uh, uh, that region covers uh, the west side of uh, Ohio, all of Michigan, and all of Indiana. Um, the meeting itself was held in Indianapolis. Um, I, I joined from my office here. <laughs> Um, but one of the interesting things um, about both those meetings, first of all, Zoom meetings for that length of time, it's painful. <laughs> it's so tiring. Um, I, don't, I just don't know what you can do about it, but it's just what it is. But one of the themes that came through both those meetings, both at the General Assembly level and at the, our regional presbytery meeting, was the near universal difficulty that churches and church leaders are having as a result of various challenges. Mostly, it's the virus, uh, COVID-19, but also the challenges connected with uh, the social uh, turmoil and economic and political turmoil that we've been embroiled in over the last six and a half months or so. Many churches are struggling as a result, and and it has produced simultaneously anger, fear, anxiety, uh, and weariness um, among, really, you know, you're thinking families, churches. Um, The emphasis at these meetings was on the leadership, on elders and pastors and staff uh, who are especially feeling the brunt of just the exhaustion of decision-making. Um, that has to continually be going on as we um, address the, the changes, uh, uh, especially with the virus. But underneath all of the, these truths, there's, there's another one, and it's this. God is on the move. Okay, God is on the move. Well, what do I mean? We have been praying for years for reformation and spiritual awakening. And I believe that's what the Lord, the Lord is answering these prayers and we don't see it. You know, it's kind of like, um, you know, the old story. What happens when you pray for patience? You all know, uh, God doesn't usually answer those prayers with these kind of spiritual lightning bolts, you know, you know, he just zaps you with patience. That's not the way it works. The way God answers that prayer for patience is he brings adversity and he brings hardship. What is it the Lord is doing now? He's bringing adversity and hardship. What is that doing? Well, it's what James says. Uh, 
Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. So what is he doing? He is refining us. He's refining us as parents. He's refining us as church leaders. He's refining us as employers. He's teaching us. You can't depend on the things you thought you could depend on. Only God is God. You have to place your trust in him. And you've got to get serious in your relationship to the Lord. You've got to be serious. You want to strive for greater zeal, greater vitality in your connection to Christ through his word, your connection to the triune God through prayer, and your service to one another, learning to guard your language and words and to be patient toward one another. We're learning these truths. Now, I also think Satan recognizes you know, I don't know if he sees the, the uh, outcome of all this, but um, he certainly sees this as an opportunity to sow division and to sow disunity and revolution and, and disheartening and discouragement. That's what he's doing right now. But the virus is going to end. And when it does, we're going to see a leadership and we're going to see all of us to some degree that are going to be more effective Because the Lord is, if we've been allowing the Lord to work in us and we've allowed ourselves to be humbled by it, it will result in a more effective, more vital, more zealous Christianity than we knew prior to this virus. I'm excited for what the Lord has. He is at work. Today, as we continue um, our series on truths for tough times, We are returning to uh, the letter to the Romans. And in this section of Romans, the Apostle Paul is showing us what it means in practice to live as Christians, to live as followers of, of Jesus. He has declared that we as a local church have to be united, verses 3 and following. That we have to love, verses 9 and following. And that we have to even as we work now 14 through 21, we have to love our enemies. Okay, We have no choice. It's kind of like you have no choice to be united. (laughs) We have no choice to love and especially love each other. We have no choice but to love our enemies. I'm not able to address everything in this passage. Um, I'll, I'll instead highlight the portions that have to do with our theme. Um, Would you stand for the reading of the word of God? Romans 12, 14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. 
For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Would you bow your heads? O Spirit of the Most High, be our teacher, be our guide. For if you're doing the teaching, we know we have a trustworthy word. And if you guide us, we cannot go astray. Help us all to gain a truer and more peaceful trust in you. Through Jesus, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Our theme today is we have to love our enemies. So if you want to know what the main point is, we have to love our enemies. <laughs> That's the point. I, everything else, you'll probably forget most of everything else I'll say, but we have to love our enemies. You've got to remember that. I'm trying to, to keep the bar low. But this raises the immediate question, who are our enemies? You know, are, are we allowed to have enemies, especially in the United States? You know, Paul doesn't actually use the term until verse 20 where he writes, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Well, who's the enemy? Well, this is an adversary. This is a person who has or is seeking to injure or harm you. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, um, which this passage um, is in some ways clearly connected to, he refers to the one who is evil in Matthew chapter 5. In verse 14, Paul begins by describing those who persecute you. Again, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus declares, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. There seems to be a personal sense of enemies in both of these passages. Uh, but we also know that it, it includes those in general, just in the surrounding culture, because of their um, more secular or more uh, naturalistic worldview, is opposed to any belief in God and the morality that flows from God, especially the Christian proclamation of exclusivity, that is, in terms of salvation, not in terms of ethnicity, but the Christian proclamation that the only way to come to God the Father is through Jesus Christ, based on what Christ has accomplished for us through his death and resurrection, that only those who place their faith in him will be saved. Well, this especially is offensive to many in the wider culture. Now, if this includes those, you know, whether on a governmental level, which thankfully we don't have a lot of governmental persecution. By the way, I was just on a, um, I was on another Zoom call um, praying for um, these little villages in India with uh, India Gospel League. And they are experiencing governmental persecution from uh, their, their um, leaders. In fact, a, a new amendment was just passed to a, an already uh, present law, making it far more difficult for uh, foreign um, uh, nations to send outside money uh, for these nonprofit organizations, including Christian missions. They feel that governmental level of persecution that we do not. We can be grateful for this. Now, if... You know, if the greater, you know, if an enemy is an adversary, someone who's opposed, someone who maybe has actively injured or wounded us, that's a greater case. 
surely it also includes, and just think of it this way, those who are, you find difficult to love, okay? You might not put them in the class of enemy, that, that's, but arguing from the greater to the lesser, if it includes an enemy, certainly it includes just those we find difficult to love for one reason or another. And it seems like in these days we're finding lots of reasons to find it difficult uh, to love others. Listen to this Old Testament description of an enemy uh, in a psalm attributed to David. Uh, he's a, the, the psalmist is um, feeling especially tormented in his soul due to those he refers to as an enemy or the wicked. And so I'm turning to Psalm uh, 55. And just listen to this language. And you know, it's surprising. I've just been reading through the first third of the Psalms recently, and I'm just kind of surprised, and maybe it's just sticking out to me because of the circumstances we find ourselves in, how often the psalmist is talking about those who are oppressing him or opposed or enemies, and he's not referring to those who are like, you know, foreign enemies, enemies from abroad. This is not the Russians or the Chinese he's talking about. He's talking about people in his own community. Well, here's what he writes here. Attend to me and answer me. He's praying to the Lord. I am restless in my complaint and I moan. Why? Because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they drop trouble upon me and in anger they beat, they bear a grudge against me. My heart, now here's the result of this, what he's feeling. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. This is David. We're not sure uh, when he's writing this, perhaps as king, perhaps prior to, but um, we can empathize with this. The discouragement he feels as he feels like those who are opposed, the adversary is gaining the upper hand. And this is creating all kinds of turmoil and, and anxiety. And I love how this continues. And I say, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away (laughs) and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. What is he saying? He says, I wish I could retire and go on a permanent vacation. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm tired. This is probably King David who's writing at this point. He said, I'm just, I'm just exhausted by all this. How can I go on? Lord, I, I just need to find that cabin in the woods for like two years. <laughs> That's what, and, and I know some of you can identify with that same experience. Returning to Romans 12. We're told that quitting our jobs and going on a permanent vacation is not the answer. Rather, here's Paul's answer. We have to love our enemies. David, you still have to love those who are opposed to you, who are persecuting, probably lying about you, who are creating all, dropping just trouble on top of you. 
Romans 12, 14, once again, we read, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now, this is where the Apostle Paul is setting the bar really high, actually. Because, I mean, let's wrap our minds around what he is saying. He's talking to his fellow believers, and they probably are experiencing uh, either governmental persecution or just mobs, if they're still in Jerusalem, experiencing the the persecution from the the Jewish um, uh, population and their leadership. Um, they've been lost jobs. Their families have been threatened. Many of them have been forced to, to flee their homes and to seek um, a, a better life in another place. That's real persecution. And notice what he says here. He doesn't just say, okay, when, when they lie about you, just, just don't, repl- you know, keep your mouth shut. Just Resist the urge to launch, you know, a counterattack. That's not what he says. Surely we're supposed to resist that urge. But he goes beyond that, and, and, and he says, bless them. Bless, what, what does that mean to bless? That means to positively wish them well, to positively pray to the Lord on their behalf that the Lord would be gracious, that the Lord would would issue his blessing upon them. That's the opposite of curse. When you curse somebody, you're saying, may you be damned. That's what a curse is. May God's curse rain on you. That's a curse. And he said, don't do that. Bless. Pray for the Lord to extend his grace upon you. We have some more practical ways of showing love in verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. So here, Paul and James are not that far apart. (laughs) We, We see Paul's inner James coming out here. It's not just with words only, but where possible that our love would be concrete, our love would be tangible. In verses 17 and 18, Paul reinforces this thought. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. See, now this is coming to our desire to be vindictive, okay? Our desire to be vindictive, that is to get back at the person who has attacked or injured us. Probably when I was, I don't know, eight or nine, I was in elementary school. I remember going to a neighbor's house and um, uh, the, the neighbor lady who was otherwise the most hospitable and loving person, I just remember she was wearing the shirt. And, and I remember, I think, because it seemed so contrary to character, um, to her character. And, and this T-shirt says, I don't get mad. I get even. <laughs> I don't, and I remember, I thought, ooh, <laughs> there's a little bit of an edge there. I didn't understand that it was meant to be funny. I just, I thought it just kind of stood out to me, and I never forgot it. Um, well, and that reminds me, I, more recently I saw this con- a cartoon with two men sitting next to each other at a bar. Uh, the one man says, you know me, Ray, I don't get mad. I get even. Then as a rule, I get incarcerated. And then I get mad. <laughs> Well, that's where getting even leads, okay? Getting even doesn't actually lead to getting even. All it does is it exacerbates an already bad situation. 
scriptures tell us that this attitude is inappropriate for God's holy people. A vindictive spirit destroys our ability to be light and salt to the watching world. There's nothing that distinguishes the Christian from the non-Christian when we act in exactly the same way as everybody else. And remember, Paul, we should see the heart of a missionary here. Paul is the great missionary. He's also a great theologian. But he knows the importance of how Christians need to conduct themselves in our work, in our relationships with one another, if we are going to be effective in our primary calling, which is to take the good news of Jesus Christ to a needy and despairing and dark world. We have to be distinctive here. Paul continues in verse 18 to give the, an ideal to the aim uh, in our relationships with others. He says in verse 18, if possible, so, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So the ideal is for us to live peaceably with others. We are not to do the things that will unnecessarily provoke others to strife and to anger. Jesus tells us in his Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the what? The peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. We, we somehow have forgotten this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. And then returning to James chapter 3, but the wisdom from above is first pure, James writes, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We're called to live peaceably. Now, there are two qualifiers here. Did you notice that? Did you notice how he began that little um, sentence? If possible, the apostle says, he knows it's not always possible to live peaceably with our neighbors. And when I mean neighbors, I'm not just talking the people on your street. I mean the, the world. And then he goes on and, quote, so far as it depends on you, you may do everything right and still not be at peace uh, with those around you. We know that some will be offended just by our holding to Christian morality and convictions. And Paul, certainly, who is writing this, um, well, he's arrested on multiple occasions. He's beaten on many occasions because of his commitment to Christ and to Christian truth. He knows it's not always possible, but to the degree that it depends on us, here's your calling. This is, this is an imperative. This is, a, this is what you must do. You must seek to live at peace with those around us. You know, I just saw, um, uh, I hope I get this right. It was on one of the church uh, marquees. Um, it said, tweet others the way you want to be tweeted. <laughs> okay, that fits right in line with what the apostle is saying. That also would apply to our president. 
But our aim is to pursue peaceable relationships with our non-Christian neighbors and the surrounding neighbors wherever this is possible. And this is in part by taking seriously the admonition, we have to love our enemies. Now, in order to help you in this high and challenging calling to love your enemies, I want to provide you with some reasons why we should love our enemies, both from this passage and other parallel passages. I'm going to just list four reasons. Number one, love is one way that evil is overcome. Okay, love is one way. It's a critical way in which evil is overcome. This is the way Paul ends this passage, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, what is he saying here? He's saying there are many occasions when you, do, when you refuse to respond in kind, but rather you respond with love, you respond with kindness, you respond with grace. Well, this has a way of getting someone's attention. This has a way of like, oh, that's different. <laughs> that's not how I would ex- have expected you to respond. And it is distinctive when people uh, respond with a soft word, when they respond with a refusal to take offense, when they respond um, you know, maybe it's a sharp criticism, and they say, you know, you're right. I was wrong. You know, sometimes that's a powerful uh, response. And, and so he's saying that, that love has the ability to overcome evil. Not in every case, but in many. Now, he'll also go on in chapter 13, where he talks about the sword being given to the, the governor, to the magistrate. Um, he'll say that sometimes uh, it'll be through the government, through the, uh, the wielding of the sword for justice, that evil is overcome. So this is not the only way that, love, or that evil is overcome. And then catch the opposite. When we fail to respond with love, but rather we respond in kind, what's actually happening is we are being overcome. That's when we lose. We think we're, we're going to win, but no, we've already lost the battle because we've engaged on that level. We've, we've, we're trying to retaliate wrong for wrong, tit for tat, um, insult for insult, curse for curse. We lose. We are the ones overcome. We have no choice but to love our enemies. Number two, um, we're to love our enemies because this is what God does. Matthew 5, this is what Jesus, again, going back to the Sermon on the Mount. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes, this is what the Lord does, he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. There's a certain sense the Lord doesn't have to allow evil to continue. He could immediately just wipe it all out, but he doesn't. And not only does he just restrain, but he continues to offer these common grace blessings. He continues to provide space for individuals to come to their spiritual senses, to recognize the the sinful revolt in their hearts, and to confess and repent and find grace. If this is what God does, this is what we should do as those made in the image of God, those who are being conformed um, uh, uh, increasingly into the image of Christ. Number three, because Christ loved us, 
We are to love our enemies because Christ loved us while we were still enemies. We see that this is hitting a little closer to home. In Romans 5, uh, listen, just verses 8 and 10. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, that is, when there was nothing good about us, Christ died for us. And then verse 10, for if while we were enemies, there's that terminology, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. It wasn't when we were good. It wasn't when we were all likable and attractive and and beautiful that Christ died. It was when we were overcome by our sins. We were enemies, spiritually speaking. And, be, and we're the recipients of that, that enemy love, that love for enemies. Again, we need to imit, be imitators. And then the fourth reason, and, and Paul um, emphasis, uh, brings some emphasis to this. The fourth reason is because ultimately God will bring his wrath on those who deserve it. In other words, no one will get away with anything ultimately, okay? In the end, there will be justice. In the end, if you are on the right, you will be vindicated. The judge who judges perfectly, so this should be sobering for us. (laughs) We should not just assume that we're on the right side of justice, but the perfect judge will judge perfectly on the final day if it is not judged in this life. Verse 19, the apostle writes, Beloved, you see his tenderness. This is so important. He cares about his readers. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And here Paul's just quoting from Deuteronomy. One way that God may repay in this life may be through um, the governmental agencies as they bring superior force to accomplish justice. But probably more in Paul's mind is that final judgment. You know, there are just going to be injustices that will be present in this fallen world until that final day. But on that last day, to fall into the hands of the perfectly just, the perfectly holy, almighty God is a very terrifying thought. We do not have to get even. We don't have to get back um, because they will be held accountable on that final day. Again, the writers of the Psalms find a lot of comfort. You know, these Psalms of lament, very often this is where they go. They find a lot of comfort in the thought that they that this, this world is not arbitrary. It is being sovereignly ruled by a perfect, just, almighty God. I'm going to turn um, back to Psalm 52. And the, the ascription is, this is a Psalm of David, and it's on the occasion uh, when a massacre took place against a group of priests at a small town called Nob. These priests had aided David while he was fleeing uh, from a very jealous King Saul who was intent on taking David's life unjustly. David was an innocent man. 
And these priests aided David and his men by giving them bread. Well, there was an observer there who witnessed this, a man by the name of Doeg. And Doeg is kind of a worm who reports what he sees um, to the king, King Saul. And in turn, in response, King Saul massacres the priests. So that's the background. That's the backdrop to this psalm. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 3. He's speaking of his enemies. He says, you, the writer, uh, David writes, you love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, oh, deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear. And shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Now, what he's saying here, this is kind of an irony at the end here. He sought, Doeg, his enemies sought refuge as all enemies. They seek refuge in their own destruction. How? Well, I'm sure this Doeg character thought he was setting himself up nicely with the king by reporting on, you know, the aid and comfort that the priest gave to David. Um, and in fact, what David says, no, you're not setting yourself up for good comfort and pleasures. Uh, in fact, you're setting yourself up for destruction. That's what's coming. And David, well, he found comfort in that thought. That perfect righteousness, that ultimate judgment will come. It's not our place, you see. Give space to God. Let God be God he will take care of um, uh, bringing uh, uh, the avenging to pass, that he will bring vindication and justice. For these four reasons, the Christian believer should be encouraged to have a change of heart and cultivate the practice of loving our enemies. So when we see revolutions spilling out on the streets, when we see more than $2 billion done in property damage, when we see police officers attacked, When we see God's people being reviled and being made fun of in the media, it's natural for Christian believers to feel angry, to feel fearful about what this means, about the future. But if we fail to guard our hearts, if we repay evil for evil, then we lose. The war is lost, and that's when we suffer defeat, by being overcome by the evil of the world. In reverse, if we want to bring glory to the Lord, if we want to please our heavenly Father, if we want to be like him, if we want to actually overcome evil, evil against us, against our souls, even perhaps against our nation, we have to love our enemies. Well, let's pray. Almighty God, bless this time of worship, and as we prepare to reenter the world Sanctify the key areas of our lives, our desires, our aims and intentions, that we may return into the thick of our tasks, equipped every hour of the day to follow your will and to abide in your holy love. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.